It is Friday the 5th of April 2019. My name is Jeremy Midland and welcome to episode 34 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a quick reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice and if you're looking for financial advice I recommend that you speak to an authorised financial advisor and in particular in today's episode just a reminder that anything said by myself and any of the guests is is just based off our own opinions. Now, you'll remember last week when we had a listener question from Arjun about ethical investing. I'll replay it for you now, if you don't remember. Uh, G'day, Jeremy. Um, First of all, thank you very much for the podcast. I've been really enjoying it since you uh, have started. Um, I have a question about investing and ethics. Um, I was looking at a lot of the... um, the stocks on the ASX and, you know, there are a lot of uh, uh, mining operations and I just can't help but feel like it's kind of gross. Um, so I was sort of wondering, and, and then there's, you know, others like on the NZX, you've got the NZ King Salmon and, you know, you hear all about the bad things about that and it's in the Marlborough Sounds and it's, and it's quite hard to sort of justify putting any money into it. So I was wondering, how do you balance um, investing and ethics? Uh, thanks very much. So after last week's episode through the grapevine, I got put in touch with John Berry, the founder and CEO of Pathfinder Asset Management. You can check out their website by going to www.path.co.nz. That's P-A-T-H dot co.nz. So Pathfinder are an investment fund. They were set up in 2009 to focus on investing responsibly and ethically in the global markets. They believe that investors should consider the environmental, social and governance impact of their investments and believe that accounting for these factors is an edge in the market that can, that can improve returns. So I thought who better to talk to than John Berry, who probably knows more about ethical investing than anyone else in New Zealand. So what I'm going to do is play for you now a, a conversation I have with John during the week. The conversation is unscripted, quite wide-ranging, and we do get a bit off topic a bit. So let's get straight into it. Right, so I'm sitting here in Auckland with John Berry, the CEO and founder of Pathfinder Asset Management. Um, so John, just to, to kick off, it would be interesting to hear a bit of history about what you guys do, and then we can get into some other questions. Great. Um, thanks, Jeremy. Yeah, so Pathfinder Asset Management, we, um, we set up in 2009, and we now manage about $150 million for retail and wholesale investors in New Zealand across five different strategies. Our focus is um, firstly international um, assets um, across both listed equity, mostly listed equity, and a little bit of commodity exposure as well. Um, but our main driver is responsible investment, and um, we have a focus in all our funds on investing responsibly and ethically. And that's been the way since the start when you, in 2010? Yeah, we launched our first, um, so we set up Pathfinder in 2009, we launched our first ethical fund in 2010. And it was pretty interesting times back there. It wasn't, um, you know, responsible investing was not mainstream there. It wasn't widely talked about and um, it was pretty hard to get traction. Um, the market changed considerably back in 2016, so um, a number of years later, when everyone found in their KiwiSaver they had tobacco and controversial weapons um, as part of their holdings in their KiwiSaver and, and that became obviously front page news. It raised awareness of consumers and, and also um, I think for a lot of product providers it suddenly became on the on the radar as well. And now we're finding you know responsible investing, which is fantastic, is, is widely talked about in the media and widely discussed by investors. Fantastic. We'll come back to that in a minute, but I, I heard you say in there that you have the a global equity focus so I'd be interested interested and the listeners will be interested in hearing what your views are on the markets at the moment. Okay so um, global equities well it's certainly interesting times um, pretty tough fourth quarter last year and um, strong start to the year this year you know what are we seeing globally um, we still like the US and in, in terms of um, different geographies we still favour the US and, and you know in recent times we've moved more of our European exposure into into the US. Um, growth globally is slowing, um, earnings growth is slowing, but it's still it's still strong in the US. And if we look at forward PEs, forward valuations across, across a range of markets, um, they're not stretched, um, they're not expensive. And, you know, the um, yield curve, shape of the yield curve is obviously um, worrying people that a recession is on the way. Um, we don't see that happening in the, in the short term. So, um, we cautious. We remain cautiously optimistic. I mean, it's unlikely 2019 will shoot the lights out for equity returns. But equally, um, will the market have a large pullback? Um, 
you know, on balance, we're staying fully invested. One of the things we think quite deeply about as well is New Zealand currency, and we use currency as a um, as a risk, essentially as a risk tool for protection when markets are selling off. Um, and in some of our funds, we've we've got quite large unhedged exposures. So if we were relaxed about global equity markets, we'd be tend to be more, um, you know have a much higher hedge. Um, we've reduced the hedge on a number of. Um, the funds on the basis that when global equities sell off, the currency, New Zealand dollar, usually sells off as well. That, that didn't necessarily happen in um, Q4 last year. The currency actually stayed pretty strong, but generally in a, in a large global sell-off, the New Zealand dollar sells off as well. So if you're unhedged, you pick up at least some protection through that. So essentially what you're saying there is by, to simplify it, by holding a US stock in US dollars, that if the, if the market were to pull back over there and that stock would lose value, there's a good chance that the New Zealand dollar would also sell off and, and minimise your Yes, that's, that's a, a, a much easier uh, <laughs> description than what I gave you. So, I mean, if we go back to, you know, 2008 um, GFC, the um, S&P 500 off very, very strongly, but so was the New Zealand dollar, and that actually was a buffer or release valve which protected investors, not completely, but to an extent it reduced the um, massive fall in the S&P 500 for New Zealand investors. Do you think it has an opposite correlation to the upside? So if, if the if the stocks are going really strong, is the opposite happening with the dollar normally? Or Yeah, look, it, it can do. It can... Um, it's, the, it's a downside correlation is what we're most focused on, but yes, you, you can see strength in the Kiwi dollar because mm. when risk is on and everyone in the world is feeling optimistic, um, then money can flow into New Zealand equities and into the New Zealand currency. Absolutely. So a, lo- a, lo- a lot of what people say to me when they talk about the stock market is they say, well, it's been 10 years since our last big, I guess, period of turbulence in the stock market, and they use that as justification that there's got to be something else coming. I mean, what's, what's your sort of view there is, are we at a time when prices are getting pretty high? Or? Um, well, if we, if we went back to 2008 and we look at the causes of the GFC, they were major systemic issues right through the global financial system worldwide. Do we have similar issues at the moment? I would say not. We haven't got um, you know, the risk of complete meltdown of financial markets globally, um, barring some unforeseen event. So the, the next question is, you know, should the bull market end just because it's been going for a long time? Of course, yeah. um, and yes, of course, all bull markets will end at, at some point. It's impossible to predict when, but earnings remain strong. You know, we've had some bumpy rides on the way through since the GFC. We've had um, European equities, you know, um, some major turmoil there at times. Um, we've had, you know, last year, some major turmoil in markets. So you can have a pullback, but we've always recovered because mm. earnings are strong and um, and we've got global growth. I guess it's easy when you look back on the chart and look back to the last lows in 2009 to forget that there has been a lot of bumps on the way with maybe Brexit, for example, and the news at the moment and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. And what what about interest rates? I mean, there's a bit of commentary about the, uh, around that, sort of saying that that's holding up the market a lot at the moment. Um, well, low interest rates are um, are a distortion in the markets markets globally. And yes, when your when your interest rates are low and and potentially trending lower, then yield stocks in particular become very interesting. I mean, we've seen um, a strong pickup this year in utilities and um, listed property stocks globally because of the yield factor. Interest rates going nowhere for, for potentially some time, um, they become very attractive. Yeah. Absolutely. And I guess if they were to stay low for a sustained period of time, then stocks would look quite cheap right quite, now, I'm guessing, in, in the future. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I'd be interested to hear, I, I had an attempt at it last week in sort of defining ethical investing on the podcast, and I, I may not have done a good as good a job as what you can. So I'd love to hear your sort of definition of, I guess, responsible or ethical investing, and I can try to ask, ask some questions around that. Great. Um, look, you, you could ask any number of investors and fund managers and um, you know participants in the market what they think responsible investing is, and you're going to probably get a different answer mm. from everyone. But to me, it's like the beauty in the bot on the eye of the beholder <laughs> yes. type of thing. Yeah, yeah. And you know, how do I see it? In very simple terms, it's simply taking your values into account in the way that you invest. And it's it, I, there's two angles to it. One is your, your personal principles and how do you want to invest in a way that aligns with your principles. You don't want to invest in tobacco stocks, for example. Um, and there's also the financial side to it. And um, there's a lot of research that would show that companies that care about environmental and social and governance type issues 
actually make better investments in the long term, more resilient companies. Mm. Um, there's research that in a market downturn, companies that you know you recall responsible, um, actually their share prices fall less, mm. and um, and they can give you market. Why do you think that that is? What do I think that is? So what, what we're talking about is companies that focus on environmental, social and governance issues and intuitively it actually makes sense. If you think about a chemical company, if it cares about the environment, then it will have very strong policies and procedures around how it handles the chemicals, how it transports the chemicals, um, the safety of its staff and um, all those things mean that it's less likely to have a spillage in the future. So it's a lower in the long term, it's a lower risk investment because you're not going to have a disastrous spill. And a spill will bring fines, it will bring brand damage, um, it'll be a bad result for shareholders. So, you know, that that's for a on an environmental type factor on a social. I, I think that is a classic example of that at the moment in Brazil, isn't there? With the um, is it Vale, the Brazilian company that had that dam? Yeah, explode? look, there's, absolutely. Yeah. There's any number of them. There's there's BP with mm. um, you know, um, well, I think with that, problems. With that Vale one, I think from what I've read, it, it it's it couldn't have been predicted necessarily. But if you knew about a lot of their policies and procedures, it. It gives it, them a higher percentage chance of something like that happening. Yeah, yeah it showed a weakness. Yeah, so we, we actually score all the companies um, individually and we're working with ex, um, international research companies to, to for scoring not just on their policies but also how they implement the mm. policies. Um, if, if you think on the social side, one of the key metrics on social is actually how you look after your employees. Mm. And if you think of a company that pays its staff fairly, has good working conditions, they will have lower staff turnover, fewer sick days, higher productivity. And so they'll make, you know, a company with a high effect, um, so, social factor will make a better investment in the long term because the staff are more engaged. And I guess, what about the sort of, the, the example of the, the cigarette companies? Because they are the classical ethical investment really, aren't they, in terms of what to avoid? and. They've been, I think, I've read somewhere, the most profitable investments sort of in the history of time, yep. <laughs> going back to sort of the 50s, 60s, 70s. I mean, how does that sort of counterbalance what, what you just said? So with, um, with exclusions, a, a number of exclusions like tobacco companies, I would say are sunset industries, mm. fossil fuels, I'll put that in the same category. Yep. But if you're looking at a decade or more horizon, they actually have a lot of challenges in terms of regulation um, and consumer how the consumer is melting ice cubes sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah there, there's there's issues. So um, I, I wouldn't say the same for armaments. Mm. Armaments is not a um, a sunset industry. The 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 approach we take is we do have exclusions. We exclude adult entertainment, um, tobacco. We exclude a number of things. But where I really want to focus on responsible investing is, um, is scoring companies on environmental, social and governance grounds and then focusing investment into really high scoring companies. Yeah. And that automatically tends to knock out um, your tobacco companies, which will have a bad social score, for example, be knocked out on that basis. So you could, you, you mentioned fossil fuels there. So you could potentially invest in a fossil fuel company yes. if it had a higher ranking than a Yep. a higher rating in the ESG perspective yes. than another one, for example. Yep. Yep. So, so for us in the in the fossil fuel space, um, our flagship Global Responsibility Fund has three fossil fuel companies, and the, the ones we've selected, um, yes, they're still involved, engaged in fossil fuels, but they have a commitment to renewable um, energy uh, development, new technology, and to transitioning to a um, lower carbon future. Um, so for us, they're the they're the best of a challenging industry. We have to recognise mm. the whole world still, um, you know, relies on fossil fuels for the economy to take over. We can't completely ignore it. Yeah, and I guess a question that a lot of people might be thinking is, it, it's it's good for you because you've got the time to, and, and it's your job to sit down and, and rank thousands of companies. But how? How how does it how would you recommend like an individual investor deal with from an ethical perspective? Um, from an ethical perspective, there there or are responsible some perspective, yep, yeah, yeah. There there are some useful tools. I think Yahoo Finance um, disclose ESG rankings um, at just very high level data, yeah. um, which is which is freely available. Um, so that's one source. Um, there, if if you're really concerned about particular issues like animal welfare. There are um, companies that publish lists of companies to avoid. Um, there's also some um, large groups in the US that, that publish lists of good examples of good companies and bad companies, and there'll be hundreds of companies on the list. So if, if someone's really interested, you can actually find um, free 
um, and and quite good research on the internet. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess the opposite approach is the investor might that might sit there and say, look, it's not my responsibility to tell these companies how to run. They've got to operate within the laws of society and everything like that. My investments is something I should focus on from a profit perspective only. Yep. I mean, what? Because that's sort of the opposite view. Is how, how does that marry up with? So if someone comes to you and says, "Look, we want to. I, I want to get the maximum profit out of my investments." Yep. Is it? Would Would you say that would match up with what you guys are trying to do? Or I'm not sure if I've asked that the right no, way. No, no, I, I think I get what you mean. Saying, yeah. I understand what you're saying. So we we would say with responsible investment, the data internationally is quite clear that the returns you'll get from investing responsibly are at least as good as the market. Yeah. Um, and and there's always a perception that you aren't going to get the same returns and. Mm. You know there is a lot of data around that. Uh, look, it, it, for each investor, you've got to make your own mind up, and you know where you sit on the spectrum. Do you believe, you know, and this is what Milton Freeman, the economist, was a strong proponent of: is companies are just there to make money, not don't break the law, don't engage in fraud, but do not take values into account when you run a business. Yeah. And then you pay dividends, and shareholders can decide to give that money to charity if they want. But the company's there just to maximise profitability. Because I know Warren Buffett says that he doesn't let his political views impact what he's doing at Berkshire yeah. Hathaway, for example. Well, the, the other extreme is, is guys like Larry Fink, who's the CEO of BlackRock, um, you know, the largest asset manager in the world. He has told the companies that BlackRock's invested in that companies should serve a social purpose mm. and should be mindful of not just shareholders, but also employees and the community. And, you know, so th- th- there's quite a wide spectrum. And that's quite a heavy weight, since BlackRock owns yeah. just about every company, part of every company. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and look, where everyone sits on that spectrum is different, mm. um, and, and everyone has to make their own decision and then take that into account in their, in their investing um, strategy. Because it's never going to be a straight line, is it? Like, it's what might be ethical for me might not be for you, and, and, and vice versa. So it's yeah. it's it's... I can I can see how it's such a complicated. It is complicated. Subject, you know? I mean, issues like you know, let's take gambling for example. Yeah. So many people, quite rightly, because of the social issues around gambling, are um, you know strongly against not investing in casino companies. Mm. Other people don't have an issue with it. And if you have an issue with it, then do you take the next step and say, okay, any company. Um, like IBM, for example, which I think about 3% of its revenue comes from the software and cloud services to enable casinos worldwide, would you then exclude IBM because it's mm. it's helping the casinos do business? And if you, yeah. get, you know, so you can get really detailed. Yeah. 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 And, and, and that example with IBM, would IBM therefore get like a lower ranking in your system because it has... Because of the connection to... to but then that 3% might be lower than someone that has 10%. Of, yeah. of their revenues from well, that. Well, typically, um, typically managers will use a 10% threshold because if you look at large global corporates, quite often they'll have pockets of um, 1% or 2 or 3%, which might be fossil fuels and they might be quite a different company. Mm. Um, so it, it's almost unavoidable in, in one respect. I guess, I mean, like Google, for example, every everyone uses Google, so whether you're ethical or unethical, <laughs> yeah. you know, someone, they're going to derive a certain number of their revenues from that yeah. as well. Um, I'd be interested to hear your views, and I guess it changes over time as well, doesn't it? Because what might have been a like a, a tobacco company in 1930, for example, might have been a perfectly wise and sound investment, whereas yeah. it, it's obvious it, from an ethical perspective, it can, they can be argued that they're the flagship companies of what not to invest in. Yeah. And then maybe in like the 80s, for example, Coca-Cola would have been seen as a, a great investment to make and now sugar and, is a major issue in yeah and, exactly yep, and, and maybe we were talking off air so to speak before about how that might be heading that way with facebook as an example now as well so i'd yep. be interested to hear your views on that and potential trends you see in the future as yep. well look it's a it's a really good point on what a company can do and what a company should do changes over time and if you go back to 1600 when the East India Company was formed um, they actually had a line in their profit and loss statement that have their sales and then they'd have something called booty which was just unreal I mean essentially you could go and capture a Spanish ship take the gold and count that as profit and that was quite legal to do yeah Um, we can't do that in companies anymore but so you know what a company can and can't do and what's is socially acceptable obviously changes over time and, and you're absolutely right. You know, where are we going from here? Um, I think there's going to be a, a really large focus from consumers on 
um, a much larger focus on responsible investing and it's going to be a lot more concern around fossil fuels mm. and part of that as well I think will be the launch of new tools for investors where they get to drill down into what fund managers and um, their KiwiSaver um, has and, and once people actually get those tools they'll be able to see exactly what's in there and I think it will, it will become really interesting you know issues like animal welfare for example which are not talked about that much in the media I think those have become more prevalent as well absolutely um, and that, that it was a point I sort of made last week as well say for an example with animal welfare for example you might have a pharmaceutical company I'm not going to name any names because I'm not sure who does what but say pharmaceutical company XYZ they might may test their products on animals, for example, and it might be inhumane from yep. that perspective, but then that product comes out and saves millions yep. of lives worldwide. Like how, how do you balance that sort of thing? Well, again, it's, it's a values-based decision, and we make decisions on those. We communicate them to our investors. But with animal welfare, at one extreme, you've got you might have a cosmetics company that's making shampoo, and they're testing the shampoo on dogs mm. to see if it hurts their eyes or not and you might say okay it's unacceptable to do it in that case what about in the pharmaceuticals where you're saving lines, lives that's that's a different story that for some that's going to be acceptable for others yeah. absolutely not acceptable um, yeah. there, there is no right answer yeah that's a, that's a tough one and yeah. does does I know we're not here now but do we do we ever get to the point where there's such a focus on this type of thing that it, it it cancels out the edge that currently exists or has previously existed in the market. By that, I mean there's so much money that piles into it that there might be a, a dislocation in terms of value. Yeah, look, we'd say, um, or we, we treat socially responsible investing the same as any other factor, um, value, growth, dividend, mm. momentum, um, size, you know, small cap, large cap, um, we would say it's just another factor. And, you, and you're right, if everyone's doing it, you're essentially going to create men, momentum or, or an arbitrage opportunity disappears. But it, it is another factor um, and that we use in building portfolios. Absolutely. Um, and John, one, one, a lot of, for a lot of people listening, and I guess including, my, including myself, we don't have that much knowledge of the day-to-day -day operation of a, an investment fund. So I'd, I'd love to hear sort of what what you guys do on a on a day to day basis in terms of running and managing the fund and how that might differ differ to a, a retail investor and everyday investor like myself. Okay, um, the approach we take is um, what we call a top down macro approach. So we're not um, stock pickers who are going to be trading on a daily or weekly basis um, mm -hmm. in and out of stocks. We're looking at, um, we're looking globally, we're saying, okay, which economies, which geographies do we want to invest in, which sectors do we like at the moment, do we like healthcare, do we like utilities? And we will choose um, both sectors and geographies and, and, build, and then we look at market factors like do we want to have a bias towards large cap or small cap? Do we want to have a above average or below average dividend yield? And we use all those factors to essentially build a portfolio by pulling in stocks with the highest environmental, social and governance um, scoring, which meets our criteria. And the, the key thing for us is a lot of our research, as well as focusing on the responsible investment side with companies, is focused on a macro level um, you know what's going on in the US, what's going on in Europe, what's going on with Brexit, mm. and we will make decisions with a six-month-plus horizon. Um, so it's typically our, our we have a, a three-monthly investment committee meeting where we challenge every position in, in, in terms of decisions we've made around geographies and sectors, we challenge those every quarter. Um, but we, we try not to change the portfolio significantly within a quarter unless it's a base assumption we've made proves to be wrong. Yeah, so you're not making like a a bottom up decision that could be, for example, um, I don't know, Apple's prices drop down to where you think it's a sensible point to buy the company based off its cash flow, for example. Yeah, look for us. If if you're saying, for example, you mentioned Coca Cola before, yeah. um, do we want to own Coke or Pepsi? Well, bigger question to us is, do we want to be in the um, discretionary consumer um, mm. sector? And then if we want to be in that sector, what particular parts do we want to be in? And then we find the companies that um, the most, what we'd regard as the most responsible companies. So it's not a, we're not pulling the balance sheet apart of um, Coke yeah. versus Pepsi from a bottom up um, yeah. analysis. I've got you. So 
obviously you mentioned before you're invested at the moment because you the the, the top down signals so to speak are telling you that when when does it become a situation where you might start to change that view and, and what would you do in that situation do you lighten up do you do more hedging or ha- how do you go about things from there well good news is there are a few tools um, that we can use and and how do we when do we choose to, to use these tools is um, we we run a we've got indicators we use about six different indicators um, which can be looking at price earnings compared to historical levels um, it can be market cap to GDP ratios, which Warren Buffett likes. Um, so we've, we've got a whole lot of metrics, and we consistently look at those on a month-by-month basis. You can see how they're changing. You can essentially get a feel for what are stress levels in markets. Um, are valuation, valuations elevated, or are they becoming more fair value? Um, and, and we'll make a decision based off that, whether we think we should be fully invested or start putting protection on. And then the next question is, what protection do you use? Firstly, you can move from more growth stocks to more defensive stocks. Um, so maybe put more utilities in your portfolio or more, mm. more listed property and move away from the um, um, high growth companies that have no profits. Um, so that, that's one tool, is become more defensive. Another is to think about currency, which we talked about before. Um, another one is, is very blunt, but just go to cash um, and you can sleep better at night. <laughs> and, and another option is to, um, is to actually buy some out-of-the-money options um, some put options. Some put options yeah. on the S and P five hundred, and and that you know you're buying protection. There's a cost. It's like an insurance policy. So you pay a fee. You know, if if you don't need it, you're going to lose it. But um, it's there if you need it. Now, some people listening may not understand some of the stuff we're going to talk about quickly. But how 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 far out into the future are you buying options, and how far out of the money? Um, Just out of curiosity. <laughs> <laughs> what, what we're looking at with option strategies, because they can be very expensive if you're trying mm. to protect against a small drawdown. So we'll be looking at the implications of a 15% plus fall in markets. Um, so chances are they'll expire worthless, but if there is a big... Yes. Then you'll... Then, then you'll get the benefit of it. And um, so that's the they're the cheapest options to buy. They're also the most unlikely you'll ever need. Yeah. We have bought those in the past, and we um, and they were unhelpful. Yeah. Um, but we had that protection on, and you know, for our well, most of the time they're going to be unhelpful, aren't they? Except yeah. for the time that they're not. Except they're, for the time they're very they need helpful. It. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but but you don't want to be spending a lot of your portfolio on an option strategy unless you have a very very high conviction that you're going to need it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, we're looking at how how far out. Um, normally a one year, um, up to one year duration. Yeah, absolutely. So John, you mentioned before that you have a, a bit of a view and a story on Facebook, um, which is obviously a stock massive company trade that you would have heard of that trades on the nasdaq i believe isn't it yeah look facebook's an interesting one it's um we looked at it when we launched our global responsibility fund in 2017 we looked at facebook and the governance is really poor um and and it's not uncommon if you look at tesla or you look at amazon they're exactly the same where you've got the founder who might own, in the case of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg owns 15% of the equity, but he's got over 60% of the voting rights. And, and um, in Is that like a dual class structure? Dual class yeah. shares. So he's got control of the company. So essentially it's, it's a massive um, global media company with a private company structure. And what you'll find with companies that are, that are run like that is often they'll have, um, around risk management, they will have issues. Mm. So that dual class share structure, does that work like he owns 15% of the company and then it's, but he actually has voting power for 50%, for example. I'm not Correct. sure if the numbers are quite yep. right there. But Correct, yeah. Yep. So the, the second class of shares gives um, outsized voting rights. And that, that's not an uncommon structure with the large global tech companies. Um, but it's it means, kind of very fashionable, isn't it? It's very fashionable. And it means, the, it means the founder keeps control of the business. But it also means you may not have the, the voices and the strength of an independent voices to make sure that there's proper risk management and change when you need change in an organisation. So when we looked at it in 2017, we saw that governance risk is really high and decided not to invest. And we didn't know where that was going to manifest in the business. We just thought this makes it really risky um, going forward. And you know we've seen Cambridge Analytics uh, Analytica as a um, as a problem. We've seen interference in U.S. elections. We've seen major issues, um, reputation issues around live streaming. Um, and what, what have we seen? And that's obviously been thrust into the spotlight in New Zealand recently, isn't it? Yeah, correct. Yeah, sadly, tragically, in New Zealand, it's been thrust in the, in the spotlight. Um, 
and 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 fund managers have recognised that there is an issue with the, both the social responsibility and the governance around Facebook. Um, you know, Milford Asset Management very recently in the last couple of weeks have sold all their Facebook shares and their global holdings. Um, Nico, I believe, sold theirs about a year ago for the same reason that we weren't investing in it. Um, the New Zealand Super Fund has taken a different approach. They're not going to sell their Facebook shares, but they're actively talking to other superannuation funds um, globally to encourage Facebook to improve mm. um, improve on, on around some of the social. Do you issues. think Zuckerberg, with <clears throat> a do, as a dominant shareholder and more money than he could ever spend, really cares? Like, if, if, if he's obviously he's obviously set up that dual class of ownership so he can maintain control of the company. Is he that bothered by outside pressure from investors? Well, I, I, I don't know what's going on inside his head, but I would say typically um, a, a strong CEO will care when it's impacting on the revenue line and when it's in, impacting re reputation. Mm. Um, I mean, you're right, just people writing letters and saying, can you change your ways may have zero impact, but if, if advertisers are pulling money and if large sovereign wealth funds are threatening to withdraw their support, I mean, it, it's, it's such an endorsement for a company to have um, New Zealand Super and the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund and you know the major Sovereign Wealth Funds on the share register is a huge endorsement of the company. They will not want to lose those. Mm. Do, you, do you see, I mean, anecdotally in my own day-to-day -day life, there seems to be so much more awareness of data and privacy and, and everything like that now than probably what there was a few years ago. Do you see that, I mean, I remember when Facebook came out, people just shared stuff without even thinking about it whereas there's a lot more awareness about that now do you think that is a a, a trend you see going forward in the ethical and responsible investing space yeah look totally uh, totally and i think you know there's there's a bunch of issues there one is um that people are becoming more aware um cyber security is important people are aware that that data has enormous value now which i don't think consumers actually realized that mm. um a while ago but the the privacy issues are absolutely important from a social responsibility um, perspective and how that data is protected. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and just thinking off the top of my head here, do you think you're hearing chatter now about more regulation for these sorts of companies? And obviously the only place that it will really make a difference from is Europe and the United States. Do you think that that's going to be a... Some, could, could these companies get broken up? Could they come in, for example, and break up Facebook and Instagram? As, as an example, or, or Amazon and Amazon Web Services? Because I'm, I'm hearing, at least market commentators say that, it hasn't been said in an official capacity yet, but I'd be interested to hear your views. Yeah, look, I think it's, um, I think it's, it's possible. Um, and, and, and it won't be a risk that the large tech companies would ignore either. If you, you think back in history, the um, ExxonMobil being broken up, um, you know, um, in Europe, um, Microsoft, Mm. Um, had a number of, of issues, and the yeah, I think the the regulators will be looking really closely at it, and and also through taxation, um, a tax through taxation on those companies, and that will be sort of for example, New Zealand is a small example, but Facebook generating revenue in New Zealand but not paying tax here yeah. is, is that what you mean? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I, I suppose the you know if you think about how has competition law changed in in, in recent decades, competition law used to be a, a problem with monopolies who would. Um, who, who would essentially put their other businesses, um, put their competition out of business mm. and then raise prices so consumers were getting hurt really badly. Yeah. And that, that's, a, that's how all the competition law in the world is, is built to cope with that sort of situation. But that's not what's happening at consumers the moment. Consumers love these products. Consumers <laughs> love them. You're absolutely right. The, the price comes down and down. The price is free. You know, it's yeah. often free. Um, so consumers are not being hurt. Who's being hurt is um, other business, competing businesses that are being... Um, either bought or put out of business and, and that's where competition needs to focus not with a consumer lens but with a, um, a competition competition in the market lens is where the damage is yeah and what about just sort of linking into that there's china has been in the news a lot recently around similar sorts of concerns i mean what um, it's a very broad question but what do you make about i guess the china and the chinese economy and how it's impacting the rest of the world yeah yeah, look, we've had quite a long conversation, and I haven't mentioned China once, which is quite remarkable. Yeah, well, yes. No, look, China's absolute for we'll investors. We'll get Donald Trump next. And, yeah. and for <laughs> Brexit, yeah. yeah. Um, for New Zealand in particular, you know, China is critical as as a significant trading partner, um, and and there are issues in the in the Chinese economy around um, you know banking system, 
um, around the transition to a more consumer-based economy, uh, trade war concerns with the US. Um, so there are a lot of things to, um, to be concerned about. Um, but again, you know, the world's, world's reliant on growth in China and growth is slowing there, but it's still, it's, it's slower growth. Yeah. Slower growth on a massive economy yeah. um, is better than 10% growth on a much, much smaller economy. Um, so it's still, it's still contributing to global growth. So do you think this trade war is, is having an, an, an impact? Do you think it's achieving what Donald Trump is trying to achieve and through, through doing it? Or is it something that you just think is more a political thing? Well, it depends on what, what we think Donald Trump's trying to achieve. If he's, if he's trying to achieve moving manufacturing jobs back to the US, I, I don't think it's necessarily going to be successful in the same way that Brexit won't bring manufacturing jobs back to, um, back to the UK. Um, but if his, if his mission is to protect um, US, the US edge in technology and to protect intellectual property, um, mm. I think he's making some progress on that front. So it was around this time in the recording of the po- podcast with John that I experienced some technical difficulties with the recording equipment and we ended up re-recording my question on globalisation and China again. But then when I re-listened to things, it actually flowed pretty well. So what I'm going to do is we actually got most of the recording, the first part about globalisation in China, and then I re-recorded it. But when I listened back, we realised that I asked a slightly different question he gave me a slightly different answer because of that. So what I've done is I've added them both together in here and it may sound a little bit disjointed from the original part, but hopefully it flows on okay. So just another question, John, I'd be interested to hear your views on some of the news we're hearing regarding China and maybe some tension between the United States and China and trade wars and and, and, and I guess maybe leading into a chat about globalisation as well. Yeah, so look, China is, is obviously a really interesting... Um, fascinating part of the globe and also from a New Zealand particularly New Zealand perspective um, one of our major trading partners so the success or otherwise of the Chinese economy is really important to us Um, and what are we seeing in China you know we do see issues there with the banking system a few wobbles wobbles in the banking system Um, you know a a transition to a consumer or service-based economy is underway but a long long way to go um, trade war with the US is um, is causing issues, and that's causing issues both for the US and for China. But it is putting pressure on China to um, um, to change. And you know we're we're still hopeful that um, our guess, guess is as good as anyone's, but we're still hopeful that there will be a resolution to that because erecting robust trade barriers between the US and China and ramping that up further um, is not going to be good for. Um, um, global markets and for certainty around investing. Do you see that as a potential risk? Oh, absolutely a potential risk, absolutely it is. So you could see that spiralling into something more than... Yep, look, I'd, I'd like to think that um, the world leaders also know what a risk it is and how much damage that would cause to both, um, well, to US, China and, and every other economy in the world. Um, and, and you would hope their, um, their advisors are managing it smartly um, to come to a resolution. Because you mentioned off air before that globalisation has been one of the, or probably the driver in terms of bringing up the, I guess, the, the global wealth worldwide and potentially reducing a lot of poverty out there. But how do you sort of explain that to somebody through no fault of their own that may have lost their job that's been outsourced overseas, as an example? Um, yes, their shoes might be cheaper, their jeans might be cheaper, they might, there might be better prospects for the bulk of the population, but there's a certain amount of roadkill in, in society that gets left behind through globalisation. What, yeah. what do you think? I'd be interested to hear your views on that and any sort of solutions to that, to that sort of problem. Um, that, that's a tough one. I mean, that's a major social issue. And, the, and the, the issue really is that economies and society changes over time and people are impacted by that. And, you know, I've seen firsthand exactly what you're talking about, where jobs are offshored and they're cheaper offshore, um, but it means people are left later in their careers and they haven't got the skills um, to start a new career. And and that is, at a personal level, that's really, really tough. And, but that... And I guess explaining that to someone that's been working in roadworks all their life that's just had their jobs replaced by a new set of equipment yeah, or, or, and that can't retrain yeah. to work in a in search engine optimization, yeah. for example. 
we've we've seen that in manufacturing and in, in manufacturing, most Western, yeah. Western companies where um, you know manufacturing is is just bled jobs and and moved to essentially cheaper cheaper locations. Great for consumers, like you say, it brings prices down, um, but there is a large social cost, and that's that's an and you know that's a huge discussion around what what can be done through government and incentives. Um, to help people, so you see it as a government, area. a government problem, well, I think as government, opposed to as a business problem. Well, absolutely, business has a role to play in that, mm. but I think government does as well in terms of um, making opportunities available for retraining. Absolutely, because it, it's something people talk about this as if it's a new thing, but it's not really. I mean, if you go back to eighteen hundred, for example, most of the world's population was employed in food production, whereas now only a very small percentage of it is. And if you went back to nineteen ninety. Google didn't even exist, so there was no search engine advertising or anything like that. So, do you the, the counter argument is that technology will re- replace these jobs in time or something else? Do you see that as a thing, or do you think we're heading to a society where it's all ro- robotics and humans? I don't know, working cafes. Well, lo- looking forward, the one one thing is the pace of change, technological change is faster and faster. So that means disruption is is going to be more common and in much shorter cycles. Than previously, so um, that's scary. You know, yeah. a lot more disruption. You know, will will that mean robots take over completely and AI takes over completely? Um, absolutely, there will be a lot of jobs that we that are, you know, great jobs at the moment that aren't going to exist in the future because it, it will be cheaper and more effective to use artificial intelligence or robots. There are also plenty of jobs where, and there will be new jobs where you require um, a, a high EQ or you know. Um, emotional intelligence and and that's something that's very human that will not be replicated by robots in any hurry yeah um, so i'm still i'm still optimistic that new jobs will um there'll always there'll always be plenty of jobs or there'll always be jobs for people to train for um but there will be disruption and you know if everyone talks about through a lifetime now you can't just have one career you may have several careers um through your life absolutely but you think the gains in productivity will benefit society on the whole and, and keep us moving forward well, I'm, I'm an optimist, so yeah. <laughs> um, that's the, yes, that's the view I take, that it is, yeah. um, it, it will be a positive, we've got a positive future. All right, so another question, John, what's your view on the property in New Zealand and I guess the wider banking system as well? I know a lot of people would like to hear this. Um, that's a great question. If, if, I knew, um, if I knew where the property market was heading, I'd be... Um, <laughs> I'd either be buying up or selling up at the moment. I mean, clearly it's at a it's at a turning point, and there's a lot of softness in the Auckland residential um, residential market with clearance rates and um, prices slipping. Um, where's it heading? Interest rates are still really low, um, so supportive of the property market, although some tightening from banks on how they're lending. Um, that that's a that is a tough one. Um, mm. Commercial property. You know, we're still seeing very low yields, commercial property, and a lot of support there, um, although it has quietened down. Residential property just seems very soft at the moment. Do you think it's likely that you'll generate the same returns over the next 10 years in property investment as what you would have in the run-up that we've had now? Um, I mean, does it get to a stage where the numbers just get silly? or? Yeah, well, I think the, the property market is going to be driven to a large extent by where interest rates go. Mm. And interest rates are low at the moment, which is supportive. And and you know, five year rate from Kiwi Bank at um, a little over four percent is yeah. um, unbelievable. Um, sorry, a little over three percent is unbelievable. The um, I can't remember actually what the rate. Is. Sorry, this is right. I know it's low. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and what about the the banking system in general? I know you have some views there as well. Being obviously with what you do as well. Yeah, there's been um, challenges globally in banking, which you know was one of the root causes of the global financial crisis. And, and banks like Wells Fargo in the US, which were just outright cheating and entirely imp- inappropriately um, incentivising their staff, and the staff behaved quite rationally, but you know essentially they were just making up bank accounts for people. It was a um, terrible outcome. Um, we've had the Royal Commission in Australia, and that look pretty deeply at Australian conduct and a lot of conduct there came up well short of what consumers would expect and um, you know, some pretty disappointing behaviour. Do you think that behaviour was adequately dealt with or punished? Or It, it, it seemed to me they targeted in a, a lot of areas rather than the direct problem itself. 
Well, they're looking for examples of really bad conduct, which I think they which they found, mm. and they're looking for change in the um, in around banks' governance and bank practices and bank incentives. And you're seeing that now. I mean, you're seeing bank Australian banks selling off their wealth division, um, separating out insurance. So, you know, they're, they're actually breaking off large divisions. They're completely changing incentive structures in banks. So. I don't think New Zealand was nearly as bad as um, the practices we saw in Australia, but mm. over here you're seeing changes as well. And it's part of a wider, there's also a wider regulatory change going on in New Zealand um, with a new code of conduct for financial advisors, new new licensing regime for the FMA, and that will absolutely lift standards in the market in New Zealand. Warren Buffett is described, you mentioned incentives before with, with Wells Fargo, and he sorts of, he's described the, the downside for these executives as a not a terribly bad result if something all goes wrong. Like you, you saw with, is it Dick Fold? At, was he at Lehman Brothers in the, in the financial crisis? I think he left, was it Lehman Brothers or another one that went up? He, he left with a, a massive big payout from the firm as an example and, and no real consequences yep. for the situation that you could argue that he led the company into. Do you think that running one of these companies is sort of just like having a free call option <laughs> where the, the the downside to is is not always that bad well you, i mean the, the incentive structures um you, you've got to balance the short term and the long term incentive structures and you've got to incentivize in a way that's good for all all shareholders and you and you're right in one in one respect you could say some incentive structures are just encouraging people to roll the dice make changes if it comes off you make like a band yeah exactly yeah and that's, if that's, it doesn't, that's what i mean you, yeah. don't, you don't bear the um the cost i mean the, the, you know how many criminal charges have there been um of bank executives from the global financial crisis i mean you none can, as far as i'm aware yeah i mean <laughs> it's and and which is wrong right the um um for the behavior and the damage caused you would have thought there'd be, um, um, there would have been prosecutions, but there's not. So, uh, you know, you're kind of right in what you're saying. It's it's an op- a free option in some respects to, to take some risk. Absolutely, because I guess if, if I were to steal a couple of cars with with a $10,000 value, I'd probably find myself probably find in, in, in court or in jail <laughs> or something like that. But we're, we're talking about, did it get up to trillions? At least billions of of. of Wealth just lost through some of the yeah, but in fairness, it was wealth lost. You know, was it negligent or incompetent or um, um, you know, but it, but it wasn't theft. Yeah, um, Bernie Madoff was theft. Yeah, and, and he yeah. did go to jail. And he's going to spend the rest of his life there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely. And John, talking off air just now, you mentioned Volkswagen is another good example of a company to talk about in this space. Yeah, look, Volkswagen's a really interesting example. Um, you know, if we go back several years, I think it was 2016, everyone's familiar with the Dieselgate where they were cheating on their emissions testing. and they There's had big the, documentaries on Netflix, isn't yes, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they had the cheating software and um, um, essentially they were, you know, their car's emissions were much higher than what they were letting on. Um, massive, massive reputation damage when that um, became, you know, became widely known. Huge fee um, fines imposed, um, criminal charges against um, senior management. So, from a socially responsible perspective or a governance perspective, we would say, um, you know, there's a major issue there that's impacting on um, on their customers. Um, to us, it, it didn't look like a just a low-level technician who's gone a bit AWOL. Mm. Um, it looked like a this major problem within the organisation, organization, a, a cultural problem where they weren't appropriately assessing risk and seeing the right and way wrong wrong way of doing things. Um, so that and our, our does main, that go back to the incentives being wrong? Potentially, but you know, potentially it. Um, um, it's either incentives or, or trying to solve a technological problem that was too hard at the time, yeah. finding a, uh, an innovative solution which, um, um, you know, which broke the law. Um, that became uninvestable to us um, because we recognised it as a, 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 a immense level of controversy that was at risk of um, being a cultural issue on the company and may manifest itself in other ways. And, and indeed it did. A year ago there was another scandal, which didn't really make the news in, in New Zealand, but it uh, made the news in, in Europe, where um, they were testing emissions from Volkswagen Beetles and someone thought it was a good idea to put monkeys in seal containers <laughs> and put the exhaust straight into the containers and test it on them. And 
And there's I, got to be other ways of doing that, right? Well, there's got to. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, I, with the history of, of what they've gone through, you'd think they'd want to be squeaky clean. But from an animal welfare perspective, um, you know, for a whole bunch of reasons, it was just, I don't know who thought that was a good idea. The head of sustainability actually had to resign at um, Volkswagen, who had signed off the um, experiment. But to us, that, again, was an example of um, just not the company not properly assessing risk, not mm. having the right structures in place, and just being at higher risk of controversies arising, affecting um, affecting the share price. So Charlie Munger, right, Warren Buffett's famous business partner, talking about Wells Fargo, he said that off, based off these scandals, he believes that Wells Fargo will be the best behaved bank going forward. Is there, like, I might be inventing a, a term here, but is it, could it be a similar case with Volkswagen that there could be a bit of a, because it's obviously a very important company for Germany, isn't it? Um, could there be some sort of ethical turnaround in these sorts of companies? or? Well, I suppose a couple of things. One is with Wells Fargo, yes, it could be a very well-behaved bank going forward, but let's not forget that the um, Fed has also imposed um, balance sheet size restrictions yeah, on the company, growth, which growth restrictions, growth restrictions yeah, yeah. which will impact... Um, and Tim well, Sloan's left now, hasn't he? In, there's in been the all sorts of, of changes, yeah. and, the, and the, it will impact going forward their profitability, so it's not it's not a um, um, you know home run. Um, with, with Volkswagen, you know, one of the issues as well is this still has a long way to play out, yeah. um, this, the, these issues, and you've got management focus um, taken away from what should be, you know, where are we with electric cars, you know, let's get um, mm. get our new range of vehicles out there. They're, they're also focused on fixing problems from the past, and, um, you know, maybe you're right, maybe if you can overhaul the culture, although in a large global corporate, that is a tough thing, that can be a tough thing to do, um, overhaul, completely overhauling your culture. Because it could be, I'm just thinking out loud, it could be a potential edge in the market if you follow these scandals over time and everyone else is bearish on it and if you realise that something has changed in the company as a catalyst then it could be an investable situation if yeah, you're so, focusing from yep, that perspective. Yeah. Absolutely, we, we actually use what's um, called a controversy rating where if, if a, a major systemic controversy is, would become aware of it in an organisation that goes on our blacklist and when we're, we're aware that the governance or um, has changed to, to improve things within the organisation that goes off the blacklist and becomes investable again. So that's exactly what you're talking about. Fantastic. That is about where we ended it. I guess one takeaway from it is that this podcast is more typically focused on the bottom-up approach to investing. But many of the processes John described can be considered in his own words as top-down. It shows that there is many ways to skin a cat. But from a bottom-up perspective, if you're holding stocks, I think the key thing to remember about ethical investing is that you, is you own, when you own stocks, you actually own part of a company. So it might be worth thinking about what you own and if you are comfortable with it and where it sits in your own ethics. So many thanks again for listening in with the podcast. As a reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice. If you are looking to find out more about the podcast, go to www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz or find us and give it a like by searching on Facebook. Make sure also to share with your friends. If you want to email me, it is jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz. Once again, my name is Jeremy Medlin and this has been episode 34 of the Stock Market Movers podcast for Friday the 5th of April 2019. I'll see you all next week.